Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 6. We're also going to go um, back to Isaiah 53 in a little bit. We'll get there as we go. Isaiah chapter 6. And just as a reminder to the, the paper back there, the timeline, as I'm talking through some of these things, it'll be helpful to visualize so you can see. I think that's just an aid to you as you, uh, as you listen. Isaiah chapter 6. We'll read 1 through 13 and then we'll pray. These are the words of God. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called out, while the house of God was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, or excuse me, here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not know. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he said, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is devastated to desolation. And Yahweh has removed men far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or like an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. Let's pray. Our Father and our gracious God, you are the God of the living and the dead. You are the Son. Uh, your Son is the resurrection and the life. We ask now that as we come to your word that we would be challenged by the treasures we find contained therein. Help us, Holy Spirit, to be alert, to be sober-minded, so that those treasures would be hidden in our hearts. Father, you have been exceedingly gracious to us, so help us to be like Isaiah, mesmerized by the profound holiness of the triune Godhead. In Christ's name I pray, amen. amen. Well, last week we looked at Elijah. We're uh, continuing our series on the prophets, and tonight we're going to look at the prophet of, of Isaiah is his name. The prophet Isaiah, we're going to look at his call to, to ministry and his call to minister to Israel, and we'll look at some of the more well-known passages of the book as well. And the book is 66 chapters long, earning him a spot among what we call the major prophets. So think about how you divide up your Bible. You have in the Old Testament, it's actually often referred to as the Tanakh. The uh, Tanakh is how people sort of uh, shorthand refer to the Hebrew Bible. The Tanakh is T-A-N-A-K-H. And there's three sections essentially in the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. And you have the Torah, which is the law, usually referred to the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. 
So you have the Torah, that's the T in the Tanakh. Then you have the Nevi'im, which is the prophets, and then the Ketuvim, which is the writings. So the TN, TNK is just sort of a shorthand way of referring to it, the Tanakh. You have the law, you have the prophets, you have the writings. And within the Nevi'im section, that's the prophets, we have usually what's called, in two sections, you have the, the major prophets and the minor prophets. And the major prophets and the minor, we call them that sort of thing, depending on the extent of their writing. So uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are large books, very large books, and the 12 minor prophets are much, much smaller. So that's why we delineate between major and minor. Now some throw in a third category. Uh, some Jewish people will uh, describe it as Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, they're like the former prophets. Uh, but either way, however you slice it, that's how they're classified in the Hebrew Bible. Now, remember what we talked about last week. The prophets would use Hebrew poetry and preaching to get to the hearts of people. Uh, poetry, especially Hebrew poetry, was like turning the amplification up on a soundboard. You, you were visualizing certain things you were using metaphors, you were using similes, you were using all of these rhetorical conventions to try and persuade people and, and preach to them. And that's kind of what the prophets did. And we talked, remember the three Ps last week. What, are they, what did the prophets do? They, they brought prosecution. They would prosecute the people of God. They would bring God's covenant lawsuit to them because they were disobedient pe people. That's uh, and the book of Revelation is a covenant lawsuit document as well. So prosecution. Then we have persuasion. The prophets would try to persuade people using rhetoric, using poetry, actually even using physical things and objects and even themselves in a certain way, as we'll see later. And they would persuade people to, to uh, come back to the law of God, to come back to the covenant stipulations. So they had prosecution, they had uh, persuasion, and then prediction was that third P we talked about. Prediction obviously being forthtelling the future should Israel obey or disobey, which resulted in either foreign nations subduing them or God pouring out his blessings. So, um, by the way, I should add here too, um, usually prophets, people think of, oh, they just predicted the future. There's a difference between foretelling, F-O-R-E, foretelling and forth-telling, F-O-R-T-H, foretelling and forth-telling. To foretell is to predict the future, but forth-tellers, on the other hand, they called forth the terms and conditions of the covenant, and they would warn that if they disobeyed, that certain things would happen, and that, of course, depended on obedience or disobedience. So, like our nation today, we're pretty shipwrecked as far as like morality is concerned. The general pulse of our culture is uh, debauched and, and a problem. Um, and so to forth tell is to preach in a prophetic manner to the world around us, saying if we will not repent, uh, things are going to go really bad. And uh, that's really what we're called to do as the, as the people of God. So both of these things are in the Bible, though, foretelling and forth telling. The prophets were most, mostly, though, forth-tellers. Now back to Isaiah. Isaiah is the most well-known of the prophets as it pertains to predicting the coming of Jesus Christ, his birth and his death being foremost in the mind of the prophet. 
Now, you, if you want to look at your timeline there that I printed, the Isaiah ministered to Israel for roughly 60 years, and that's from around 745 B.C. to 690 B.C., roughly in that time frame. That's when Isaiah ministered. His father was Amoz, uh, or Amos, as some pronounce it, and it's possible that he was born in Jerusalem. It's possible that Isaiah was born in Jerusalem. It's also possible that he was a member of one of the royal families there in Jerusalem. And the reason scholars assume this is because Isaiah had easy access to the kings. Uh, he didn't really have to jump through hoops to get access to them. So he, he could get it in and out of the White House very quickly, probably because his uncle worked there or something, you know, that sort of thing. So that's probably who Isaiah was. And uh, social status was, of course, a big deal, uh, being able to minister to the kings. So on your timeline there, you can see in the red, under the section of the southern kingdom, Isaiah lived during the reigns of four kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. Remember, the kingdom split after Solomon's sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, had messed things up. And Israel was in the north, Judah was in the south. So during the four reigns, you had King Uzziah. King Uzziah reigned around 783 to 742. You see him listed first there. Uh, we also had Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Hezekiah reigned about 715 to 686 BC. So you can kind of see that on the, on the uh, timeline there. Now, during Isaiah's ministry, that's highlighted there in the gray, during his ministry, Assyria was a looming threat. The Assyrian kingdom to the north was, they called the shots during the day. They were the heavy hitters. They were the powerhouse. They were the Rome, the, you know, Rome in the first century. That was them way back in the eighth century BC. So in 740 BC, this event took place. Syria, Israel, and Edom gained together and they decided to attack Judah because they refused to join with them against Assyria. So you won't join us? Fine, we'll attack you too. So that was going on in 740. By 722 BC, you can see that in the, on the map there, by 722 BC, Assyria had taken the capital, Samaria, the northern kingdom, and that fell. And as a result, they were deported to Assyria. Now, by the way, you remember when Jesus met the woman at the well? The Samaritans were sort of half-breeds at that point. They're, they can be traced all the way back to this moment in history when the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom. That's who the Samaritans were. Now, I want to give you a little bit about Isaiah's life. Regarding his life, he was married to the prophetess. That's all we know. We don't know her name, but he was married. They had at least two sons. One son was Sheer Jashub, which means a remnant shall return. That's in chapter 7, verse 3. And then in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, we have what I think is the greatest name in Scripture, other than Jesus, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. So, <laughs> say that 50 times fast. So who names their kid that? I don't know. Isaiah did. Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. Okay, say that. Go ahead. You can nick, maybe call your dog that. It'd be fun. So we don't know much else about that. He may have had a third son, but we're not sure who the kid is we're talking about, and that's related to the prophecy of Jesus, actually. 
But Isaiah, Isaiah was a social critic. That's, that's, that was his job. He was a social critic. He was a man of conscience, as one author put it. He was someone who cared deeply about his people. He cared enough to speak up. He was a prophet like Elijah. Elijah was a little more, I don't know, he, he tended to be a little more uh, razor sharp. <laughs> Isaiah was more poetic and beautiful in that way, I guess. But his bold actions before Ahaz, um, even walking around nearly naked, okay, in, Je- in Jerusalem, that was in chapter 20, walking around essentially in his underwear because it was a prophetic warning of the coming desolation. He was essentially saying, I'm you, you've sinned, you're going to be walking out of here with nothing but maybe a little under tunic. And that was one of the crazy things that Isaiah had done uh, in his ministry. And all of this was done to demonstrate his diligence, to demonstrate his concern for the holiness of God and the holiness of the people of God. Okay, this is, we'll come back to this, but this was part of his main concern. I, I, Isaiah, I want to explain that though for a minute too. You can read about it in chapter 20, but Isaiah essentially laid aside his preaching robe, his normal outer garment, laid it aside walking around in tunic underwear, without shoes, by the way, which is significant, without shoes, He was signifying a morally and socially destitute man. That's all he has left. Kind of a homeless man with nothing. And he was saying, this is Israel. This is us. I don't suggest we do that, the church, today. But perhaps we can get creative on some measure and demonstrate to the world around us, this is what you guys are. You're morally destitute. Now, that's what Isaiah's ministry was all about. If, if you ask me, what is Isaiah's ministry? It's about the holiness of God, period. He cared about the holiness of God. Holiness as it pertains to God's transcendency, as we'll see in a minute. Holiness in, in relationship to judgment and sin and how God cares about his people. And he cares enough to rebuke them in their sin and their folly. And also holiness as it pertains to salvation and the deliverance of God's people. So the point of the book, 66 chapters long, it's, it's very long but very good. The point of the book is basically the highlighting of Yahweh's holy reign as king over Israel and the world. That was what he, that's what he cared about. He cared enough about the holiness of God, the kingdom of God, that he dared to proclaim and preach the truth of God to a disobedient people. Now after the Assyrian debacle... Isaiah's focus was getting Judah to to repent, because if you look on the chart there, you see Assyria and their empire to the right. They had ruled a long, long time, and they had taken out the northern kingdom there in 722, but they were still a threat to the southern kingdom of Judah. So Isaiah spent his days getting them to repent so that Assyria wouldn't destroy them as well. In fact, um, under the leadership of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, you see the, the weird names of the Assyrian names, um, Tiglath-Pileser uh, III, Shalmaneser V, Sargon II, and then Sennacherib. Great name. Name a cat Sennacherib. It's great. But uh, um, when, when King Hezekiah was in charge in, in the southern kingdom, Sennacherib, he was a king of Assyria. He invaded Judah. He actually besieged, historically, he besieged Jerusalem and uh, Judah was only spared utter destruction uh, because of Hezekiah's repentance, and that's outlined in Isaiah 36 to 38. 
So the lesson here is judgment is only paused when people take note of the holiness of God. So let's look at our text. Isaiah 6.1. That's the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. And if you're paying attention, you might be thinking, well, what about chapters 1 through 5? His ministry begins in chapter 6, but what's going on in chapters 1 through 5? That's a good question. Uh, the, the chapters 1 through 5 here in Isaiah is a prologue, and it demonstrates the spiritual depravity of Judah. It's like a preview of coming attractions. Chapter 1 is about Israel's defection, their apostasy from Yahweh as a nation, as a religious people. They've allowed social conditions to virtually destroy their culture. Uh, they've forgotten who they were, their identity. Um, Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, as he's called, had been forgotten. Is, is, has God been forgotten in our day? <laughs> it would seem so. And chapter 1, as I mentioned earlier, is one of my favorite sections because it's a scathing rebuke. It's fitting for today, absolutely. Chapters 2 through 4 is about God's establishment of Israel through Abraham and how that now is in jeopardy because of their sins. Chapter 2, a great passage, you can read it later, is about the future church of Jesus Christ when the nations will stream to them, to the church, to hear about the law of God. They wanted to know more about God. So the mountain is lifted up. That's the people of God, this new creation temple, that we, who we are. Uh, our culture should be inquiring with us about what to do, but instead they're still printing more money. So here we are. Chapter 5 essentially tells us that God has been exceedingly gracious to them, but what has Israel done in response? Well, they've been rotten. That's in verse 24. They have been rotten to the core. So these are all a prologue. It's a preface to what happens in chapter 6. But in chapter 6, we have this beautiful vision. Israel, excuse me, Isaiah is Israel in this situation. Sinners, sinners in need of deliverance. Look at verses 1 through 7 again. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Make sure you envision this here. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. The seraphim, I mean, six, six wings, it's incredible. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called out, while the house of God was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King of Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Uzziah died around 740 B.C. Uzziah's death mirrors Judah's impending death. Uzziah is gone. Now what? The, the king is dead. What is Israel going to do as a nation? Are they going to repent? Are they going to be res restored? The vision that Isaiah sees, according to the Gospel of John, is the second person of the Trinity. Who is this that, that he sees in the temple with the train of his robe filling, the smoke, the seraphim flying over? Who is it? John tells us it's Jesus. It's the pre-incarnate Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And the scene is simply majestic. 
The Lord is high and lifted up, which speaks of his sovereignty, his transcendency, his glory. He, he, we're confronted with a God who is so far above us, so far above us. He's wholly other. He's entirely distinct from us. He is wholly perfect. And we see the train of his robe. What does the robe signify? Well, it's his authority. And the train of his robe is like unending. His authority is unending. The train of his robe, just, it's just fabric everywhere. Fills the temple. And we cannot see the Lord in his entirety. No man can see the Lord and live. We know that from Scripture. So he doesn't fully see. But he is sovereign. God is sovereign. And since he's sitting on his throne, he is in the seat of infinite authority and power. I mean, had you and I seen that, we would have responded the same way as Isaiah. I'm a sinner. I can't be here. <laughs> but that's Isaiah's vision. Isaiah is in the heavenly temple. God fills his presence in the temple. Now the earthly temple, the earthly tabernacle, all sort of what the garden was, then became the tabernacle, actually the ark as well. Noah's ark is like a pre-tabernacle tabernacle. But then you have the tabernacle, then the temple. But all of those are mere copies of what is going on in heaven, in God's throne. And yet God fills the earth with his glory. The earth is his footstool, he says in Isaiah 66. Now the seraphim, who are the seraphim? The word seraphim literally means burners. They're burners. They, they are fiery, heavenly beings. Uh, each of them have six wings. They stood above God. But certain things are covered by their wings. Remember how they had six wings, so three pairs, and some things were covered. Well, two wings covered the faces of the fiery beings. They, they can't look upon God either. That's what we're dealing with. Their, their ears, though, their ears are open to hear the word of the Lord, but their eyes are covered. The other thing they cover is their feet. They cover their feet. Why would they cover their feet? Probably because their feet are only allowed to move in the direction, in the path that God has called them to. They listen to God's commands. Another one of them cries out to the thrice holy God in song, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Um, when you're reading your Bible, pay attention to this. Anytime something is repeated, it, it's meant to draw attention to it. And here, this thrice holy God, he's called holy, holy, holy because of the ineffable nature of God. Indescribable. Words just don't communicate the glory that's there. We can only say holy, holy, holy three times. It's all we can say. Those repetitious words, those glorious words, holy, holy, holy. The holiness of God is so far out of reach of the minds of men that we can't comprehend it. All we can say, all we can figure out to say is holy, holy, holy. That's it. This is total, infinite, and unique majesty on a grand scale. A picture you and I have never witnessed. But someday we will see the glory of God. The thresholds, the, the foundation of the threshold, the whole thing is shaking at God's voice. God speaks and everything shakes. Isaiah can only see the architecture. He can only see the heavenly beings. He can only see the train of his robe. He, he can't see anything anyway because the smoke is filling up the temple. Smoke signifying the presence of God. And the shaking, of course, is the only response that you can do. 
given the magnitude of God's grace and his holiness. The earth shakes, so do men. Isaiah, how does he respond? How does he respond to this beautiful picture of God? Well, in verse 5, he, only, he can only respond the only way any of us could ever respond. All men who truly meet the Lord are met with glory and conviction. Unclean lips. Why does he mention unclean lips? Well, unclean lips, which is basically symbolizing the least of all the sins. You think of the heavy-handed sins, murder and all these other things, but unclean lips is viewed sort of as like the least of all the sins. But the least of all the sins, those unclean lips has run up against the Lord of glory, the most magnificent vision of holiness to ever been witnessed. And Isaiah's unclean lips are a mirror of Israel's unclean lips. Their iniquity is so deep that even the mere lip that we have, these two, the upper and lower, that we use to communicate, those have to be cleansed. Not just the heart, not just everything about us, the lips have to be cleansed. And Isaiah sees himself, he sees himself in the light of God. You, our culture today, bent on this self, you know, self-invention, postmodern. I'm gonna, def, I, we, we're going so far as to write our pronames in our Twitter bios and, you know, and on our uh, little name tags at the Starbucks. Make sure you call me he/him. Would hate to be called a her. It's offensive, but that's what we do. We we have tried to invent ourselves because we don't look at ourselves in the light of God. We look at ourselves in our own mirrors and that's it. But Isaiah sees the light of the glory of God and he can really then only truly see who he is. And what does he admit? He, I, he sinned. It's all he can come up with. He sinned. All, all the sins. All of them. A lot of sins. The darkness in chapter 5 verse 30 is now met with the blinding light of God's majesty. Only God can restore a nation. Only God can restore a, a sinner. Only God can forgive. So the burning one, a seraphim, one of them, flew over to Isaiah, eyes covered, feet covered, the other two wings are flying over to him. He takes the tongs and he takes the burning coal from the altar. Now the, the altar in the tabernacle in the temple mirrored the altar up in the heavenly places in God's dwelling place right now. And that altar is the eternal fire of God's wrath, which is necessary because of his holiness. Anything contrary to the holiness of God is, is sin and deserving of wrath. That altar represents that. So he takes a tong and grabs the coal, brings it over, probably put it in his own hand because he's a burning one. He can touch fire, it's fine. Takes that piece of coal, puts it right on Isaiah's lips. Probably maybe burns him, we don't know. But touched his lips, and it was a, a symbol of atonement. The wrath of God had been appeased here in this situation. God only forgives when satisfaction is made, and satisfaction is only made when a propitiating sacrifice is present. That's why the death of Christ is what it is. More on that later. So the judge has taken away Israel's sin, taken away Israel's guilt, burned it up in his holiness and his grace, swallowed it up in his divine grace. That's what has happened here with Isaiah. And after being restored by God, the rest of the passage explains Isaiah's commission and his task. And we could learn a lot from it. He hears the voice of God next. Was it thunder? Was it 
how, how did it sound? We don't know. But he hears the voice of God. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? The triune God being present. Who will go, God says. Who will go for us? Isaiah volunteers. Here I am. Send me. A restored man is a missionary man. That's the only definition we have. A restored man is a missionary man. If you have been made new in Christ, you are now a missionary man, a missionary woman, a missionary child. You've been called to this task. Um, a revived man is also a man with a, with a job to do. And then we get something strange. <laughs> Who's going to go for us, God says. Isaiah's like, I'll do it. And then the weirdest thing in the Bible happens. Are you ready? Look at verses 9 and 10. And he said, God said, go <laughs> and tell this people... Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not know. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand in their hearts and return and be healed. <laughs> Isaiah is told to go to spiritually deaf and blind people in order to tell them about something they can't see or hear. In fact, he doesn't even want them to know because then they'll turn around and be healed. What a weird prophetic ministry. Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, I think it's chapter 4, says something similar about the parables. Yeah, I'm speaking in parables because if they hear, they'll, they'll repent and believe. And I don't want that. Hmm. Prophetic edge? Maybe. What a mission that Isaiah has. This, this outer sensory perceptions of, of hearing and seeing. The people can still hear, they can still see, kind of, but their inner perception of understanding and knowing don't align. There's a breakdown. Isaiah is sent by God to a people who are incapable of hearing and responding to the message that he's supposed to deliver. <laughs> what a job. Go preach to them. They're not going to hear you or listen to you, but do it anyway. <laughs> who wants that job? He's doomed, right? I mean, <laughs> wrong. Truth must go out into the world regardless of his response. If the church today could get that right, we would see such sweeping change in our country. Truth has to go out regardless of who's going to listen, who's going to hear, who's going to repent. It just needs to go out regardless of the response. We sow, God makes it grow. That's the, that's the paradigm, right? Our job is to give witness. God's job is with his spirit to divide the heart. That's not our task. So Isaiah's task is actually one of agitation, a disruption of the status quo. Prophets are disruptors. They are troublemakers like Elijah, whose obtrusive preaching messes with the real troublemakers. Why would you stand out in front of this abortion clinic? You're causing problems. Well, you're causing problems by dismembering children. Is it you, O troubler of Israel? And Elijah says, no, actually, you're the troubler. We have a problem. That's what prophets do. Isaiah's agitation in verse 10 was to render the hearts of this people insensitive. He was supposed to go and preach the truth, and the stony hearts were supposed to go into more stony hardness. That's how it was supposed to go. Note the chiasm structure, by the way. Heart, ears, eyes. Eyes, ears, heart. The prophet 
must level charges against the whole of the nation. He must level charges against the whole of the man. His charge will either drive them to repentance or that will be the fullness of their iniquity and God will bring his judgment. The preaching will either, this is what preaching and prophetic witness today does. It will either exacerbate their sinful conviction. And I've seen that. I mean, when you get cursed at and spat upon and yeah, we just found the hornet's nest and we took a big stick and that's what happens. They fight back. So it's either going to exacerbate that sinful con- conviction and thus they will fill up their own cup of God's wrath or the preaching will devastate their sinful disposition and they will repent. But that's why we're to go and we are to preach. And either way, the preaching has to happen. The preaching must go on. For how long? Isaiah asks in verse 11. Well, Jesus... God tells him here through the mouth of Jesus, the word of God, until the cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is devastated to desolation. Look at verses 12 and 13. And Yahweh has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or like an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. God is chopping down this tree of iniquity down to the stump. He is collecting his tithe. He is burning the social order of Israel so as to judge and forgive, to bring calamity to them, but yet to raise up hope. And there is hope, by the way. I get it. We're like creeping up on $5 a gallon. Everything's like really not great at this point. But there is hope, but it's not without fiery judgment of the wrath and holiness of God. Now, I want to zoom out a bit and help you see this passage within the larger context of Isaiah's ministry. Especially the things that are going to come later. So be ready, we're going to turn to Isaiah 53 in a second. Isaiah's name. His name means salvation is of Yahweh. Isaiah's name means salvation of Yahweh. Pay attention to names in Scripture. We saw that in the book of Judges. The names are important. Yahweh, salvation is of Yahweh. Israel having to face Isaiah's message, signified by his name, was the program. Isaiah went around and said, you must face the reality that salvation is of Yahweh. He is the Holy One. You must deal with it. Men will not know the salvation of God until they know the slavery of sin. We have a lot of people walking around today who do not understand the slavery of their sin. And they'll never understand the salvation of God until they know the slavery of sin. I mentioned earlier that Isaiah is Israel. Both needed to see God correctly. Both Isaiah and Israel needed a fiery atonement and a cleansing. So do the nations. And Isaiah was commissioned to be a light to Israel, just like Israel was called to be a light to the nations in Isaiah 42.6 and 49.6. And by the way, Jesus said the same thing. Kids, you remember what Jesus said? I am the blank of the world. What did he say? I am the light of the world. That's, he's thinking Isaiah. Isaiah 42.6, 49.6. Mark them down. Great verses. Isaiah was a light to Israel because Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. The church is supposed to be a light to the nations because Jesus was a light to us. That's the logic here. 
Now, Isaiah is interfaced with Israel just like Israel is interfaced with the nations. And this is especially profound and pronounced back in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah describes this suffering servant who's going to come. And this is probably one of the more noted passages in Isaiah that people reference, the suffering servant. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 3. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, that for the transgression of my people striking was due to him. So his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, Jesus, putting him to grief. If you would place his soul as a guilt offering, he will see see his seed, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. Now, several messianic prophecies come out of Isaiah. You might remember Isaiah chapter 7 where it says, the virgin shall conceive. 700 years before Jesus comes, a prophecy about Jesus coming. Isaiah 11.1 is a prophecy about a a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesus is from the line of David. He's going to be raised up. Um, Isaiah 9.6, you remember the famous Christmas passage. For to us a child will be born, a son will be given to us, the government will rest upon his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. There are dozens and dozens of citations in the New Testament referring to Isaiah, but Isaiah 53 is perhaps the most illustrative of what the Messiah would come to do. What did Jesus come to do? He came to take our sin, to take our sin buried in the tomb and raise us up with him so that we can be the victorious people of God he has called us to be. Now, Isaiah 40, Isaiah is broken up into three sections, but the first 39 chapters are a section, but then you have this other section, Isaiah 40 through 55. And basically, it can be summed up this way. The people are in despair. There's no hope. People are frustrated. They need hope. There's no hope. They are asking, based upon the calamity that has come upon them, they're asking if history is just a mockery of God's promises and God's people. Do you want to know what you should be praying this week, amongst several other things for each other and so on? But you should be asking God to vindicate his name, because right now he is being mocked. Mocked. And the prophets would spend a lot of time dealing with that issue. Lord, is history just 
here in the here and now just a mocking field for people to spit upon you and to trash your holiness? Is that what you desire? Vindicate yourself, God, and watch him do it. Also, the people were asking here, (laughs) have the Assyrian gods, the Babylonian gods defeated Yahweh? You look around, is Christianity defeated because of the humanists? Have you, God, let them win? And if so, why? And we know the answer why, because the church has failed miserably in so many areas to teach the whole counsel of God. We know why, but we should ask God. Isaiah spends ample time destroying the pretend gods of the foreign nations. And he does first by saying, well, God is the only true God. He's the transcendent and holy creator God. The gods of the nations are created by men, and they are not transcendent. They are impotent. They're powerless. They're weak. They're phony and fickle, just like the men and women who create them. Uh, I can't remember the passage. It's in Isaiah. I after I finished with my notes, I went, was going to go back and look, but I never had a chance. But there's one section where he makes one of the guy who chops down a tree, builds himself a little idol of worship, and then takes the rest of the wood, builds a fire so he can eat. It's like, oh, that's a really great God to worship. Like, you had to make him. He couldn't even... You had to make him? That's not very good. But the second issue is that Isaiah, Israel's path is actually a path of vindication and justification. They just don't see it. I have to ask, what, what is going to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ? $10 gasoline? <laughs> like, what is going to separate us from the love of Christ? We know the answer. Paul says, nothing. Shall the Assyrian gods, the Babylonian gods, the humanist pagan gods in D.C., in Richmond, here locally, shall they separate us from the love of God? Shall Israel's own sin be such a deterrent that God himself can't possibly overcome the gods of the nations? By no means. By no means. Isaiah grounds his theology of Israel into a proper theology of God. God is, God is unique. He is altogether different than anything in the world. Furthermore, due to his holiness and his authority and his power, God is able to easily defeat the gods and the idols of the nations. This is easy for him. It's easy for him. In fact, back in chapter 2, Yahweh is explicitly said to be not just the God of Israel, but the God of all the nations. God judges Israel and the nations, and he does it by his Torah, his law. And Isaiah's encounter with Jesus in Isaiah 6 is the linchpin on which the entire book rests. The supremely unique and inexhaustible holiness of God is what dictates all of human history. I, I, I look around at what's going on, and I just confess, like, it's frustrating you're probably frustrated too. And it's easy to let anxiety stir up in your soul and you become just, your countenance changes and you, you, you sort of let that go. But if we don't cling on to this truth, I don't know what else to tell you. The, 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 the supremely unique and inexhaustible holiness of God is what dictates human history. It's the ineffableness of God's holiness that makes history There's no match, there's no rival, there's no opponent that can possibly stand toe-to-toe with God. The the idols are made of wood and stone, the things God created. And our God is holy, 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 which should drive us to entrust our future to Him. We are, according to Isaiah 12, to trust and not fear. 
We shouldn't live in such a way as to look around the world and assume that whatever stands in opposition to God is somehow more powerful than God himself. Are you hearing my words? Hear God's word here. Trust and not fear. Go back and underline that in Isaiah 12, 2. Trust and not fear. In other words, we, we shouldn't look at the absolute stupidity of everything going on in the world right now and live as though God isn't authoritatively sovereign over it. Don't let yourself go there. Yahweh alone is the creator of the universe. He declares the end from the beginning, Isaiah 60, excuse me, 46.10. And when sin enters into God's good creation, he is capable to bring resolution. Pagan mythology sees nothing but chaos of the gods, the chaos of the gods. The Christian theology sees the orderliness of God's sanctifying presence. So we, we can trust him. We, we may make the world a desert because of our sin. That's Isaiah 34. But God turns it into a garden, chapter 35. God sits above the circle of the earth, Isaiah 40, verse 22, as the supreme Lord of the creation. He explains the world, he defines the world, and he imputes meaning to the world thanks to all of these law structures that God has put in place. The self-existence of God and his subsequent lordship over the nations is where our hope is found. And thanks to the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has taken away our sins, we can say with confidence that salvation is of Yahweh. But additionally, let me say this. The question that leaves men baffled is this. We have to deal with this because the world doesn't understand it, but how can God be just and yet forgive our sins? That's something that runs through Isaiah. How, how can God be just and yet forgive our sins? Because if we've sinned against him, we deserve that penalty. If sin requires a punishment, how is it possible for man to be saved? And the answer is the cross of Christ. Isaiah gives us in chapter 53 a beautiful picture of the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ our Lord. Kids, understand this. Christ was crucified for you. He was crucified for your sins, that you have sinned against him. And at the cross, Jesus became sin. Those sins, the lying, the deception... Right? The impure thoughts that protrude from a heart that's been deviating from God and His Word. Those are sins that are nailed to the cross. You and I were nailed to that cross with Him. His death is our death. And we did it to Him. And yet, it is also the same place. And in the same glance, that cross is the place where God's justice is satisfied. Jesus being human, you might wonder, especially kids, listen, because wonder why. Why did Jesus have to be fully God and fully man? Well, here's why. It's a very simple solution. Jesus, being human, had to die because man had sinned. He became a man to identify with us, to be tempted like us, but never sinning. He had to be a man to die because man had sinned. Man had to pay the penalty. But Jesus, being God, he had to take on flesh and only because only God could make the perfect sacrifice. You and I can't sacrifice ourselves as if we're going to atone for our own sin. The cross is the perfect answer to man's problem of sin. Jesus Christ on the cross in our place for our sins. Jesus Christ raised from the dead, abolishing death, raising us up into this new status of righteousness. We are declared to be justified by faith alone. So as we think about this, the proclamation of the gospel is actually the real, true emancip emancipation proclamation. 
the gospel frees us from slavery to sin. And I said earlier that men will not know the salvation of God until they know the, the, the slavery of sin. The book of Isaiah actually ends with this new creation language, this new creation of Jesus' work, the entry of the new covenant into the world. We are the people of God. We live in this new creation order. We are in the new, new covenant age. Christ has been risen. He has been enthroned. And we wait for him to wrap up history in the final resurrection and judgment. But Isaiah here at the end references, we are the people of God. We have come, as Hebrews says, to the, to the city that Abraham longed for. And this is because the kingdom is supposed to reorient our lives. It, it reorients our lives so that we can help others reorient their lives. That's the idea. Israel was to be that light to the nations. They were in covenant so that others could be in covenant. What Jesus was for Israel and the ingrafting of the nations, the church is supposed to mimic and then be for the world. Which means that we must look at the world not as we see it and not as other men see it, but only as God sees it. So if you're prone to be tempted to find yourself in a season of despair, don't see the world as you see it. Don't see the world as the other men see it. Don't see the, for crying out loud, never see the world as the White House sees it. Only see the world as God sees it. That's what Isaiah encourages us to do. Look at the world from the throne room of God and not from the standpoint of humanity. Humanity is hopeless without the gospel. Humanity is dark without the gospel. And the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. That's Isaiah chapter 9, the Lord Jesus Christ. So consequently, church, we must behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, don't let days go by before you have contemplated deeply the holiness of God. Don't let days go by before you have uttered a prayer on your lips. Don't let days go by where you haven't stopped and considered the glory that is Jesus Christ. We are supposed to be in awe of his holiness, of his glory, of his authority, his power, his sovereignty, his judgment, his salvation. Is there any God besides me or is there any other rock? I know of none. Isaiah 44 verse 8. And with that we pray. Father, you've been good and gracious to us. We thank you for the ministry of Isaiah, the depth of wisdom that is found therein. We ask and pray, Lord, for you to shape us, God, that we would behold your holiness, that we would be drawn to, to prayer, drawn to your word, not despairing by what we see in the world, but trusting, trusting in your sovereignty. Father, there is very much a lot of work ahead of us. And we know in many regards, it's going to take generations to undo what took generations to toss in the mud. So we ask for your favor now. We don't deserve it, but we trust you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.